The John Morris Show, episode 141. The John Morris Show. Your life on code. Ladies and gentlemen, John Morris. Hey everybody, welcome back to The John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This episode, going to get into intuitive design. It kind of has become a buzzword as of late, for a little while now. And a lot of people like to talk about how their design is intuitive and this and that. But I want to get into what intuitive really means and why a lot of people should really not be calling their app or their website or whatever they're building intuitive. And so, again, just going to break down what it means and then the specifics of how you actually create an intuitive design. But before I get into all that, I want to kind of go through a comment that I got over on SoundCloud for one of my recent podcasts. Now, again, I'll I'll reiterate, I, I often mention past podcast episodes. And so I want to encourage you, if you're new to the show, maybe listen to an episode or two, or this is your first one, to take the 10-episode challenge, which is to go back and listen to the last 10 episodes, because I spend a lot of time referencing those, and sometimes you'll be lost if you aren't caught up on what we've been talking about. So these all kind of lead along with one another. And so again, just go back, listen to those 10 episodes. It'll give you a good idea of where you're at, what I'm referencing. And also, then if you haven't subscribed, it'll give you, you know, an idea of whether or not you actually want to subscribe to the show and and listen to it long term. And so hopefully after that, you will. But in a recent podcast, I had talked about, uh, I talked about the, I'd referenced an episode I did before on college degrees and how I thought for web developers, they're really, uh, they're not as useful as a lot of people think. So anyway, I got this comment from Kimbro. Now, we're going to go, we're not going to go into the college degree side of this. There's actually something else in here that I wanted to point out. So she says, hi, John, great podcast. I'm a 70-year-old woman who started building my own site 16 years ago. Friends who saw my site asked me to build them a site also. That is how I got my first port- portfolio together. I now am employed employed full-time by a company as a web dev and also build sites for anyone who comes to me via word of mouth. I have never had to advertise. I learned the skills I needed by researching online. So you are quite right. You don't need a a degree to get work in web dev. So I actually want to talk about, well, first off, thank you. You know, anytime someone you want to tell me I'm right, I'll, I'll go along with that, 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 you know, the way to a man's heart with that. But, um, I want to talk about the part where she says she's a 70-year-old woman who started building my own site 16 years ago. So Kimbrough here started, got into web development at 54 years old. Now, I bring that up because I consistently get questions from people who ask me who are in their 20s, maybe 23, 24, or even in their 30s, some in their 40s. But a lot of people in that 20 to 30 year old range who ask me if they're too old to get into web development. Well, I hope Kimbrough's story is a resounding no, you are not too old. Because I firmly believe 
that you can start at any age. Sure, it's better to have been like Mark Zuckerberg and had a dad who had some forethought and some some insight and got you into programming at age seven so that by the time you got into college, you were well-versed in all of this stuff. Sure, that would be ideal, but you don't really have much control over that. It's either happened or it hasn't happened at this point. And so now you have to play with the cards that you've been dealt. And if someone who is 54 years old when they started can make it happen, and, and think about it. You know, a lot of people say, well, that's a rare case. You know, maybe some got lucky and some things went hurt. It took 16 years, right? Now, obviously, there was a progression along there, but think about how old you are, right? 16 years. So chances are there's plenty of time left for you to make this switch. And again, I'm sure that she got going and has been, you know, been kind of just cruising along for a number of years. It probably didn't take all 16 years to get where she wanted to go. But so uh, a lot of this can happen faster than 16 years. But even if it took 16 years, let's say you're 23 years old. Let's say it took 16 years. I, uh, I know, again, I've said this before, I'm an oddball. But I would rather spend the next 16 years scratching and clawing and fighting for a life that I really wanted instead of being in that factory screwing in those three screws like I talked about in a recent episode, wondering what in the world happened with my life. I would rather spend those 16 years doing that than than regretting all the choices that I had made. So again, you've been you've been dealt the hand that you've been dealt. There's nothing you can do about that at at this point. But unless you're, you know, 85 years old and in poor health, then there's never too, (laughs) it's never too late to start. And I know that's kind of a cliche, but I get this question all the time. Are you, am I too old to get into web development? No. Get into it now rather than later. That's really the, the, the point. And the one thing that I always say about people who are maybe a little bit older when it comes to learning web development is that there is a reality of time. That so all of this is not to say that there's that time doesn't exist and there's not some sort of reality. There absolutely is. And so you you probably more than someone who's maybe uh you know, 15 or 16 or seven years old or whatever, if you get started at that early age, you have a little more time to mess around, right? You don't maybe have to take it as seriously at first, or you don't have to be as committed or dedicated. So if you are a little older, you do have to be a little bit smarter about how you go go about it. You may have a family, you have kids, etc. So you have to be strategic, okay? And, And you have less time to to screw around a little bit. And so that's why I always go back to the things that I recommend. This is for somebody of any age, but especially if you're older, these become even more important. And that's the three things that you need to do in order to learn as fast as possible. One, take an integrated program of instruction. I messed around, and, and this was back in the day where there wasn't a lot of 
uh, integrated programs available. But I messed around going through tutorials all over the place on YouTube and Google and so forth. And it just ended up taking me a lot longer. Now, I was in my early 20s. And, you know, I did have some time to screw around, around a little bit, although I would have preferred not to. But if you're a little bit older, you don't have that time, right? You, you, or you don't want to, you don't want to waste that time. So quit screwing around, like stuck on this idea. People get in this community, get so stuck on this idea of free. And like, I get that it's self-serving for me because I promote paid courses and so forth. I get it. But just put all of that aside for a second. People get so caught up on this idea that they have to learn everything for free and it costs them so much time. You are, lose, you are losing far more in terms of time and what your time would, would get you if you actually had learned this stuff sooner than you'll ever pay for any sort of course. So don't get caught up on that. Don't be afraid to take an integrated program of instruction. What I mean by that is a course that was designed by an instructor to teach you something. There are free options out, out there available, but I, I personally have found that some of the best ones are the paid courses that are out there. So don't be afraid to take those. The second thing uh, then is to build real applications while you while you learn. And that's why I always recommend freelance sooner rather than later. Yes, there's probably a threshold of skills that you need in order to get hired somewhere. Although for entry-level jobs, you, the freelance or start applying for jobs is, is really the, the way you could look at it. But Start trying to get work sooner rather than later, whether it's freelance, whether it's a job. And while you're learning, actually be building things either for clients or for a boss or whatever. You're just going to learn so much faster than if you try to learn and do tutorials in a vacuum and pick around with learning this skill and that skill. You really need to know how all of those skills come together. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is find a mentor. And find when I first found the the first mentor that I ever had, you know, there were things that he could show me in two minutes that would take me days to try to, to figure out on my own. And so they can just help you get through things a whole lot faster. So if you're a little bit older, those three things become much more important because you don't have as much time to screw around. So you really need to focus in on those things. Again, integrated program of instruction, build real applications while you learn and find a mentor. Now, I'm going to give you my little pitch for you if you're someone who's looking to learn PHP because I think my PHP 101 course is one of those integrated programs of instruction because I've designed it specifically to teach you skills that you'll need in order to build real applications for a boss or for clients. It's not a bunch of extra stuff. Right? It's, it's not all these extra skills that are nice to have, but aren't core and foundational to what you're going to be doing on a daily basis as a PHP coder. I teach you those foundational skills that you're going to use over and over and over again. And it's all designed to help you get there quick. So if you're someone who's a little bit older, it's really great because it's all about speed and getting into an IT career as fast as possible. So it's an integrated program of instruction. You're also going to be building real applications while you go through it. The first module, you build a full-fledged contact form. The second module, you build on top of that and get into uh, a multi-page form. And forms are 
really in a lot of ways the foundation of what our web is today. If you look around all the sites you use, Facebook, YouTube, Google, all of these different sites, they're all based around ultimately forms and you, you people entering information and submitting data. And so it's a foundational skill that can serve you in a ton of ways. And then there's just a huge market out there for it. I've talked before in the past about Survey Monkey, who sold for or, uh, uh, Wufu Forms, who sold to Survey Monkey for 35 million. Uh, Survey Monkey itself that does like 113 million a year. They're valued at 1.35 billion, and their core business is online forms. So it's a huge market, and it's real world skills. And then, of course, I'm there available for you to contact and, and, and ask questions and me to help you through different parts of the course once you're a student of the course. So, again, that's my little pitch for my PHP 101 course as something for you as someone who may be a little bit older or if you're younger and just don't want to waste the time that you normally would waste, then it's a, it's a really good uh, pathway for you to take. So you can learn more about that at johnmorrisonline.com slash php all right we're going to take a break when we get back i'm going to get into making your design actually intuitive and what that means and some of the specifics behind what you actually have to do design wise in order to make that happen you're listening to the john morris show johnmorrisonline.com you know it's kind of funny every time someone uh joins my email list i ask them a very specific question i ask them what would you say if I could, if I told you I could teach you how to master PHP in the next few months. And I get a lot of interesting answers. Now, I get a lot of people who, you know, they say, sign me up. Where do I start? Let's do this, right? I get people who are a little more skeptical who say, um, it would depend on the details, you know, if it costs, what it costs, etc. And then I get people probably on the most skeptical end who are like, well, what does it exactly take? to master PHP. And all these are really great questions. Now, let me ask you this, since you're here listening. What if I told you that you could get started learning everything that you need to know to master PHP, all the foundational skills that are necessary to move you out of maybe that job that you're working right now that you don't really like and just get yourself into an IT career. Oftentimes, people do it making more than they were making before. But even if you could just make the same and start doing it in an IT career as opposed to like I used to do, which was wearing my little chicken costume walling around in Greece all day cooking chicken. Imagine if you could learn what you needed to learn, get the foundational skills you needed to start that process all for just seven bucks. What would your answer be? I hope your answer would be a resounding yes, because I know I'm going to go all keep off my grass old man on you, but I remember what it was like when I was coming up and the option to get all of that training in one place simply didn't even exist at that time, unless you wanted to read through a 500-page PHP manual, which I didn't want to do. But today, not only is that option available, but it's only going to cost you 7 bucks to get started. So if you're someone who's serious about learning PHP, about making a career in the IT industry, about getting out of whatever you're doing now that you might hate, and getting into the tech industry, you don't have to 
be a PHP coder forever. That's the thing. You can, if you want to get into all the fancy new stuff, Node and Python, and well, Python's not new, but Django and all this other stuff, all these frameworks and everything that's out there, that's fine. But one of the fastest ways to get out of where you're at now and into a an IT career is through PHP because it's simply the most popular server-side backend language that you're going to find. The job opportunities are huge, and there's companies that out there that are just starving for PHP developers. Clients out there starving for people who can create PHP applications. So again, if you're someone who's serious about making that happen, then I want to encourage you to head on over to johnmorrisonline.com php. You can start taking module one of my PHP course for just seven bucks. So today, skip the latte from Starbucks, head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash php, and let's get started with your PHP career. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, we're going to get into talking about intuitive design. So it's become kind of this buzzword that people talk about in 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 you know software design, software engineering, web development, etc., all about making your website or your application or whatever you're building intuitive to use. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced certain application developers and so forth who will talk about how intuitive the design of their application is. And then you go to use it and it's not intuitive at all. And so it feels like it's almost like people think that intuitive design is the way that it looks and it's become almost kind of a buzzword for nice looking design but the truth is intuitive really has a meaning and there are people out there who spend a lot of time looking in and researching and studying this stuff and there are some specific things that you need to do or need to accomplish in order to make your design actually intuitive so I want to first start off by talking about what does intuitive even mean? Because again, a lot of times it gets thrown around as a buzzword and it feels like when people talk about it, they don't know what it actually means. So I'll give you the the, the uh, dictionary definition first. So intuitive means using or based on what one feels to be true, even without conscious reasoning. So that's a broad term for intuitive, but the idea is that it's it 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 is or it works the way that you would think it would without you having to really think about it too much. Like it's just the way it naturally feels like it would work without you having to think about it too much. Now, I think a more precise discussion of what uh, intuitive means for us designers and developers comes from Jared Spool. And this is a from an article of his I'll link to uh, in the notes here for this episode, but uh, from UIE, which is User Interface Engineers. So uh, this is actually, I think, his website that he built, but uh, spends a lot of time talking, obviously, about interface design. And this is the way that he put it. So he says, to those who please the English language, interfaces can't be intuitive since they are the behavior side of programs, and programs can't intuit anything. So the program itself can't intuit. It's the people using it that intuit. So when someone is asking for an intuitive interface, what they're really asking for 
is an interface that they themselves can intuit easily. They are really saying, I want something that I find intuitive. And so what that means is the thing that they're using works in such a way or it it is designed in such a way that they can very easily figure out the way that it works without having to go through like some hardcore training or having a class on how to use it, etc. That actually reminds me of uh being in when I was in the army. Uh we would there were the time I was in the army, you know, the army always lags a little bit behind everything or the military and the government as, as a whole kind of lags behind everything else. And so the time I was in the army, we went from very non-technical, non-computerized way of doing things to almost everything being computerized. And so if, <laughs> if you've ever been in the military, you know what I'm talking about, but the first iterations of certain systems would be very, very clunky because it's actually in a way a credit to the to the military and the army because they would be when they made the decision we're gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna switch this to a, a, a computerized interface, they would be very specific about rolling out, about shipping quickly. And so they would ship a product that functionally worked and then and and oftentimes that first uh iteration was very clunky, very hard to use. But they would take the user feedback and then they'd roll out a second and a third and they'd keep doing that. By the time you got to a second or third or fourth iteration, then it became much, much easier to use. And so it was a very, very quick way of rolling something out and not trying to guess how people might use it, but actually building it based on how they they actually do. So in, in some ways it was a, it, it was a credit, but uh, <laughs> I've I've used plenty of clunky designs and the problem that you always have with them is the way that you think that it would work the way that you would naturally want to move and and do things it wouldn't work that way it would it would either be the opposite or it'd be much more difficult or 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 something along those lines and so you would just get really frustrated and all the only way you could really describe it is it's not intuitive, it's not easy to use, but you really, as a user, don't necessarily know what that means. And so the the way that, uh, again, intuitive means the way that you would think something was, w- would work is how it actually does. So your natural, when you look at something, your natural behavior, what you would just want to naturally do is also how it actually works and you don't there's not a lot that you have to learn. You know, we used to have to go through all sorts of classes and training on these interfaces when they would roll out for the military, especially the first iterations. We we might have a two or three day class on how to use this piece of software and it was necessary. That's not what you want for your design. If you're if you're constantly a good sign is if you're constantly having to tell people how to do something or you have to create, you know, 70 different video tutorials on how to use your product, there's a good chance that it's not naturally intuitive. Now, there's always probably going to be an area for certain really complex applications and interfaces may may require, you know, certain elements of training and so forth because it's it's difficult to break down into something that's just naturally intuitive. 
but that's always your goal. That's always what you're pushing towards is where, where someone can just walk up to it and be able to use it. And more specifically, what we mean by intuitive is that you're building your app to support people's natural behavior. So you're actually looking at the way that they behave and you're doing everything that you can to make your application just naturally support the way that they already behave when they want to use your 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 interface. And so with that, we kind of get into what I consider the two kinds of intuition. One is natural intuition. It's kind of what we've mainly talked about. It just works the way that you think it would. And then the second one is trained intuition, which is you you are trained to use it without really knowing that you're being trained to use it. So there there is some there is an element of having to learn it, but you're learning it in a way you're not sitting down reading a book or a manual. It's just you 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 click a couple things and you can figure it out very quickly. So an example of natural intuition that I kind of stumbled upon the other day. So I normally am a I use like the Old Spice or the Axe three in one shower gel. That's I'm really try to keep that simple. But the other day I ran out and, you know, I was in the shower, so I couldn't go get another uh, bottle. And so I had to use my wife's stuff. Now, <laughs> if you're married uh, or in a relationship with uh, a female, then you may know that they kind of tend to, I'm stereotyping a little bit, I know, but tend to have different things. You know, there's a face wash and there's a shampoo, then there's a body wash and maybe there's a couple of different kinds and so forth. And so I had to use my wife's shampoo and conditioner. And when I looked at the bottles, they had done something interesting with the way that they had designed them. So the shampoo, the bottle itself was all purple on, on both bottles. But for the shampoo bottle, the little pump to pump out the shampoo was purple. And on the conditioner, it was white. And when I looked at them naturally in my head, I I just thought that the the white one would be the conditioner because conditioner is usually that white color and it had that same kind of color to it. And so my natural intuition was that that was the conditioner and that the other one then must be the shampoo. But I've done it enough times where I've put the wrong thing in first. I actually looked and turns out that I was right. My natural intuition was correct that the the one with the white uh, pump was the conditioner and the one with the purple pump was the shampoo. Now, I had never noticed that before. It's not something uh, uh, maybe others, other, um, you know, other shampoo bottlers or whatever do something like that. But I had never noticed that before. And thinking about it, I imagine that there was a decent amount of thought that went into that, that it was designed to try and make the the shampoo bottles intuitive that the one that you would think is conditioner actually is conditioner and it, and it turned out to be the case so that would be an idea uh, an example of natural intuition the way i naturally behaved and i imagine they probably studied it but the way that i naturally wanted to behave was how it actually worked the second one is then what's called trained intuition and so i like to use the example of the Android back button. So anybody who's ever used an Android phone who then goes to iPhone, one of the things that you find really annoying 
is that with Android, you're used to there being a, a kind of virtual set of keys that you can tap the screen and there will be a back button, a home button, and then a tabs button. And when you go to iPhone, a lot of times the back button is, is um, built by the app or it's based or dependent on the actual app that you're in. So with iPhone, you can click, they have the hard, they have the hardware key or the, the, the actual hardware piece of a key that you can click once and it'll take you home. Or you can click it twice and it'll pull up the ad, uh, apps that you have. So you get those two keys kind of mimicked over on iPhone in a fairly easy to way, intuitive uh, way to learn. But the back button, you don't really have an equivalent. It's usually dependent on the app. At least last, it's been a while since I used iPhone. But the last time I've used one, you, you would have to find it in the app. And it can be in different places. Some apps maybe don't have it. It gets really, really annoying to try and use a back button on the iPhone after you've used Android for quite a while. Now I imagine there's things that when you go from an iPhone to Android are the same way. Well, that intuition in me to wanna hit that back button on the Android, that's not something I naturally have. That was trained into me because initially, you know, I think some of the very original Android devices didn't even have that, or maybe they did, but it wasn't something that I naturally just had in me. I was actually trained to use my phone in that certain way. And so if you've been on iPhone and you've all only ever had an iPhone, you probably don't even notice because you're so used to using the phone that way. But because I was trained another way, when I go to use like my wife's, well, my wife doesn't have an iPhone anymore, but she used to. When I went to go to use it, it would always, I would hate it. I just want to throw it because like, it was just annoying to try and use. Again, that's an example of trained intuition. It's something that I learned how to do without me really knowing, uh, uh, without me really knowing that I was being trained. Right. And so, again, that's that's all about what kind of intuitive means in a, a hopefully more specific sense. What I want to get into now is how do you go about than actually making your application intuitive. And the focus point for you as a developer is what's called the gap or the knowledge gap. And so the gap represents the gap between what they what a user currently knows about your interface, interfaces in general, it's what they currently know and what they need to know in order to use your application. So if you were to imagine a continuum and on one side of that continuum, you have someone who knows absolutely nothing about your interface, has no knowledge. And then on the other side, you have someone who knows absolutely everything about your interface, right? So it's the two extremes, knowing nothing all the way to, to knowing everything that they need to know. If you imagine that continuum, then you'll see that individual people will fall along different points on that continuum. Now, some pe some person may be tech savvy, so they may be a little closer to the knowing everything. Not, they won't know exactly everything, but they'll be closer to that side. Someone maybe, you know, doesn't know anything about tech, and they'll be much, much closer to the knowing nothing about it. And what you'll find is among your users, you'll find clusters. So you'll find that you'll have groups of people that will cluster along that particular continuum. You, know, you might have um, first-time users clustering clear towards the the 
the not knowing very much about your uh, about your interface. On one side, your designers and engineers will obviously cl cluster much closer to the knowing everything about the design, and you'll have different clusters in between. And you have to know who your target is, who your target audience is, and which clusters matter most to you. That's the first thing. You have to know which clusters are most important. When you build apps, you don't build, uh, you don't try to build apps that are everything to everybody. You you have segments, you have people you're targeting, you have users you're targeting. So you need to know who those users are and where they fall along that continuum. And when you do that, what what ultimately matters is you have two points. You have their current knowledge point, which is what they currently know, though that cluster of users, and the target knowledge point, which is what they need to know in order to use your interface. And a design will seem intuitive to a user under two conditions. One, if the current their current knowledge point and the target knowledge point are the same, if they're identical, which would mean they already know everything they need to know in order to use your interface. Then it will seem naturally intuitive, intuitive to them because they don't have to learn anything. Okay. The second condition is it will seem intuitive to them if the current knowledge point and the target knowledge point aren't the same, but the user is trained in a way that they're not overtly aware of it. So, so like me learning how to use the Android back button, I didn't take a class on that. I didn't sit down and go, okay, here's my Android manual. I hit this. I just, when I got the phone, I saw this button that had a back arrow on it I hit it one time and it went back and I go oh that's the back button so I was trained how to use it and it became it became a natural part of my intuition so much so that I get annoyed when I use an iPhone but I never was overtly aware of it right I didn't again didn't take a class and go through some seminar so if that's uh, that's the second condition under which people will find what you have built naturally or intuitive where they can there is some learning but they just learn it without being overtly aware of it just by using it and it's simple to learn so example that i like to use of of the training of, of the second condition we've talked a lot about the first one and that's obviously the goal but you're not always going to be able to do that and so a lot of times where you're going to spend your time is in that second one and so the example that I like to use is that of hotel signage because I've experienced this and it it, <laughs> it really stands out when, when somebody gets it wrong. So if you think of all the signage that you'll often see in hotels, you might have exit signs, you might have a sign that points you the way to the pool, to the lobby, all the different areas of the hotel, you'll see these signs. And you don't know the layout of the hotel, right? Every hotel is laid out a little bit differently. You didn't go and study a map to figure it out. You didn't sit there and take a class over the, the hotel layout. You know, you don't really know the layout of the hotel. But if the signage is done correctly, it's intuitive. Meaning you can just walk down the hall and the signs will point you the way that you need to go. And you'll be able to figure out anywhere you need to go into the in the hotel because the signage is done properly and makes it easy for you to do that. 
And after you've gone to the pool or to the lobby a couple times, you'll have it memorized and you don't even need to use the signs anymore. Well, that's an example of you being trained on the layout of the hotel, but you don't even realize it. You're just following the signs and before you know it, you've been trained on the basic layout you need in order to get where you need to go for the different things that you want to do in the hotel. So that would be, in my opinion, a good example of an intuitive design. Now contrast that if you've ever been to a hotel that doesn't have proper signage, that you know it's it's hard to find things and you have no idea where you're going, then I've had to actually sit down and look at the map and say, okay, I'm here. I want to get over here. I need to go out the door, go down, take a let. Like now I'm actually training myself or giving myself a class on the layout of the hotel. And it's really, really annoying. And those are often ho- hotels that I, in, in the future, I'm not going to go back there because it's a pain in the butt to get where I want to get. So again, that's the difference between something that's naturally intuitive or something that's not intuitive, something naturally intuitive and something that's trained. Uh, you're trained to, it's the intuitive training. And so you want to, you're going to operate in those other two spheres, trying to make things as much as possible the way that users behave, that's how your thing naturally works. Or if you can't get there 100%, build the training into your application so that when they use it, they're naturally trained how to use it and they don't have to sit down and take a class or read a manual, etc. That's what it means to be intuitive. Now, again, there's a couple key things in doing this. First off, you need to know your users. So you need to be watching people use your application. Now, if you're building an iPad, well, then you can do focus groups and watch people use it and see what they naturally try to do, record it, and and then use that as data for how you're going to build your app. If you're building a website, well, maybe it's a little bit different, but there are tools out there. For example, one is called user testing. Uh, I think it's just usertesting.com. And what they'll do is they actually have people that they pay to go to your website and record a video of them trying to use your website. Now, they'll talk while they're doing it and they'll talk about their experience and so forth. And you take that as some of the the data. But what I like to do is just watch their mouse. Where does their mouse, where does it want to go first? Or if they say they have an intention of, I want to find the menu, where does it go? And if you watch, you know, do this, I think you can, for free, you can do one every month. But if you even if you if you go to the paid plan, you can do more. But if you watch these enough, you'll start to see patterns of where people want to go when they're wanting to do certain things. And you can change your website to accommodate that. Or Google, uh, Google Analytics um, will provide heat maps. And so they'll show you uh, different places where people click and, and where they're moving their mouse and all sorts of there's all sorts of tools for websites where you can you can see where people are naturally trying to go to find things uh, and get an idea of how you can make it more intuitive for them. If you're building like a phone application, you really ought to build your phone application, then give it to 10 or 20 friends and watch watch them use it. Where do they want to click to find things? What are they naturally trying to do? And record that stuff and actually get an idea of how you can make the design more intuitive to where where they naturally want to go to find something, that's where it is. Or 
having visual cues that uh, allow you that that signal to them where they can find certain things. So again, knowing your users, knowing what their actual behavioral intentions are, what they naturally want to do, and then building your application, refining your application to to build that into it or providing visual cues that make it easier for users to to uh, figure that stuff out. Now, I'll finish by giving you the shortcut. And the shortcut in my mind is this. For almost everything that you would try and build, there's often some sort of framework or design guide out there already. So for example, if you're going to build Android apps, well, Google has rolled out its material design and there's a lot of applications that your users are going to use that have been built based off of material design. And so they're already going to be trained on how to use an app built off that design, those design principles. So you probably want to build your app for Android using those design principles. So you don't have to do a lot of the figuring out. Google's doing it for you, and you could build on top of that. Now, that's where you get into this fine line of you get designers and developers who want to recreate everything from scratch and recreate the wheel, and I want it to be my thing that I came up with. But it's going to be very, very difficult interface-wise for you to come up with something that has more data supporting why it's built that way than say something like Google. So that's why you have to check your ego a little bit and realize that for your end user and their usability purposes, it's probably better for you to maybe not have it designed exactly how you want it, but be designed in a way that your users are used to using. Same thing with websites in a lot of ways. There's a lot of frameworks out there. People love to hate on Bootstrap, but one of the reasons why I like to use Bootstrap is because so many other sites do. And people are used to using that sort of design or that sort of interface. And so they're already trained in a lot of ways to use it. So I don't have to spend a lot of time figuring it out all on myself and recreating it from the wheel and so forth. And again, there's likely much more data behind and supporting the reasons why it's built the way it's built than anything you or I could ever build ourselves on our own. And it, you don't have to like bootstrap. There's other frameworks out there that have a lot of prop popularity and so forth. But ultimately, my point is this is, a, this is one of the, the shortcuts is one of the advantages of using pre-built frameworks like that that answer a lot of those questions for you already. You have to check your ego a little bit, but you don't need to recreate the wheel. You don't need to build this all from whole cloth and from scratch yourself. There's a lot of tools that you can rely on if you're able to check your ego a little bit and focus on not you showing off as a developer, but what your use, what's actually best for your end users. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I'm going to take a break. And then when I get back, I'm going to get into answering some of your questions. So if you've asked, asked me a question via email, Twitter, YouTube, etc. over the last few days, week, whatever, be sure to stay tuned because there's a good chance I'm going to be answering it next. You're listening to The John Moore Show. 
johnmorrisonline.com. You know, one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of developers make is they make learning how to code much harder than it has to be. For example, I see a lot of developers who think the list of skills that they need to learn to master PHP is pages and pages and pages long. It's not. Now, I've said this before, and I will definitely say it again, but there's a foundational set of skills that you need to learn in order to be functional as a PHP developer, meaning that you can execute on projects and get paid. This is the fallacy that is so prevalent in the PHP developer community, that there's this ideal set of skills that you have to learn and that you have to be the absolute greatest developer in the history of mankind in order to be able to get paid to code. You don't. You simply need to be able to execute on projects. I talk about end results all the time. You need to be able to deliver end results to clients because that's ultimately what they want. But when you focus on these found foundational skills and learning only those first, the things that will allow you to execute on projects, what you realize is that you can start getting paid to code much faster than you probably ever thought because you haven't set this idealistic, unattainable bar for yourself to reach before you allow yourself to take paid work. You can start now when you can execute on a deliverable, when you can complete a, a single project, when you can create a contact form or a business website, when you can execute on that, you can start. And you can start then building the life that you wanted that you got into this all for the, in the first place instead of continuing to slave away at some job making somebody else rich. Anyway, you can learn these skills in my free course, The Beginner's Guide to PHP, which you can enroll in at johnmorrisonline.com slash learnphp. And it's going to teach you these foundational skills so you can get started right now. Again, it's a completely free course that you can take at johnmorrisonline.com slash learnphp. Don't wait on this. Head over there right now and get started building that life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This segment, going to get into answering your questions. So I'll just dive right in here. This first one comes from Jan via email. And she says, I recently started watching your videos. Although most, if not all of them, are really helpful and motivating, I can't help but feel as if some of the things you say sounds too good to be true. Kind of reminds me of Ty Lopez. He's always the, he's the, here's my garage and here's my Lamborghini guy on YouTube. Maybe that's just my insecurities and low self esteem talking. I basically do not feel like someone would pay me more than $100 for any given project. Okay, I, and look, that's reasonable. I mean, you know, you hear somebody say something that just is completely out of your realm of thinking, and it's a natural instinct to think it's good, too good to be true. I mean, when I first started freelancing, I first the the first price point that I put myself out there as at was $25 an hour. And 
for me, that was just a ton of, I never made that much money per hour in my life. So that was kind of my limit in terms of my thinking of what I could charge. If you came to me today and said you wanted to pay me $25 an hour, I'd laugh at you because there's no way I would take $25 an hour. So with experience, that stuff kind of tends to work itself out. So again, I can see why if you're kind of new getting into this, it's unfathomable to think that someone might pay $100 an hour or whatever. So again, it's reasonable. Now you bring up Ty Lopez. The thing I'll point out about Ty Lopez, where it, it sounds too good to be true, and you bring up him as an example, well, his stuff's been looked into and it's like he really does own the house and the cars and the so forth. So it's actually true. So if that's your example, I would say, yeah, I am like that because it's true. So uh, to get into, but to get into what you're actually talking about, about it's insecurity, low self-esteem, you say $100 for any given project. I imagine you mean $100 per hour for a project. And I bring that up because if you're talking about $100 for a project, I mean, I think I can dispel that pretty quickly right off the top. That's, I mean, there's almost not, I can't think of a project I would take $100 for. And I think most developers out there, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. $100 for a project is very, very low. Uh, so I, if it's per project, then yeah, definitely. But if you're talking about $100 an hour per project for a project, then yeah, I mean, you have to... You have to understand you're not going to start out right away and be charging $100 an hour. Most people don't do that. Uh, one, they're just not comfortable with it. Two, they really aren't worth that much in terms of their productivity. But So you got to start where you feel comfortable with. But I again, if you do it, you'll find that. Uh, like me, I started out $25 an hour. That blew me away that I was able to charge that month much. And then I started, you know, it was probably four, five, six months and I was getting so much work and I was, you know, I was working all of these hours and to, to, you know, build these things for people. And I found that the amount of money, because web development is so mentally intensive, you know, it just, the amount of hours and how stressed out I was and how overworked I was feeling wasn't worth it. And I got to the point I had just like so many clients, I basically felt like I had to move up my pricing, because I was just so overworked and overwhelmed. And so I moved up to 50, eventually 75 and 100. So it was incremental. So start where you're comfortable. Although, you know, I probably wouldn't start much less than 20 bucks an hour at least, and then go from there. And it'll all, <laughs> you'll see, it'll sound more reasonable as you, as you move up. The next one comes from uh, Morgan via email, and uh, I believe this is a she says, I appreciate the videos you do on YouTube. You've really helped me to learn a lot. I was wondering if you have any consulting, uh, and if so, how much does that cost? I'll give you a semi-brief rundown of what's happening. I have no idea how to structure a database for this or anything. I had a front end going, but now I'm working on the back end and learning as I go. Ultimately, I'd like to have clients sign up for my site with their organization. In that organization, they'd be given a master user who could then dictate the amount of total users that organization can have. 
The master user would then be able to set up employees as admins who can add more users and change the permission level for each user. Something like master user, C-level, supervisor, location manager, employee. All of these would have different permission sets. But first thing is just getting the database system down. So this goes back to answering specifics like this is often a little bit tricky. Um, you know, you got to kind of dive into some technical details and get what people really mean by certain things. But this kind of all goes back to a video I did a while back where I talked about database design. And I talked about the three different kinds of database tables that you have in order to create a really fluid design. So the first one is an object table, then there's a meta table, and then there's a relationships table. And so what each one of those does is an object is exactly what you would think it is. It's the actual object, so the user, the post, etc., depending on what your application is. In this sense, it would probably be the user would be one of your main objects that you have. Then you have meta. So you'll have certain data that is essentially required for each user. So email address, username, password, maybe first name, last name, whatever you think is every single user has to have this data. That's that's what you're going to include as the fields in your object table. Then you'll have a meta table, which is really optional data. So for each object, you would have a meta table. So you'd have a user's table. And then you have a user meta table. The meta would be optional of data that you can attach to any user, but not all users will necessarily have it. So one user might have a certain set of meta and another user wouldn't. Okay, so it's optional data that you can attach to individual objects. And then the third kind of table is what's called a relationships table. And that is establishing relationships between two different objects. So the example that I use in the video is, let's say you have a post as an object and a category as an object. Well, let's say you want to say this post belongs to this category. Well, you would create a relationship between those. And the reason you do that is to keep it really, really fluid. And a relationships table is really, really simple. It's usually an ID field. It's the ID of one object and the ID of another object. And so now you have something that tells you that those two objects have some sort of connection. It doesn't necessarily just tell you what that connection is, the, the nature of it. Often that's implicit in what your application is, but it, it tells you that there's some sort of relationship. And so just on a very basic level, I could see you doing something similar here where you have, you know, let's say you have a master, you, you have a user's table, which has all of your users, and then you have meta, that describes certain users at, uh, as uh, master users, or maybe you just make it a part of the data and every user has a particular role. So you talked about roles. So every user has a particular role. Some are the, have the role of master, some have it as supervisor, some have it as employee, etc. But every user has a role. So that's part of your data. And then maybe you have some sort of relationships table between users where you describe some sort of a relationship between uh, a master user and an organization or a master user and other users, etc. You could build your relationship tables out that way. And so again, when you're storing in the database, it's about 
kind of keeping it loose and then you tie it together with your code. So what a lot of people try to do is they try to make everything explicit in the database and you end up with really convoluted, difficult to manage type database setup. You want things kind of loose and then use your code to tie it together. So again, the specifics of this, you know, we could spend the next two hours doing that. But using those three types of tables can help you to accomplish pretty much anything I've ever had anybody throw at me in terms of how do I design my database for this, that, or the other. So I'll link to that video that I referenced, which goes much more into detail in this in the notes for this, this episode so that uh, you can have access to that. But uh, again, those are those three tables are the way to go. All right, that'll do it for the show. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to like it so they know that you like this kind of content. If you know somebody who'd benefit from hearing this, I'd appreciate if you'd share it with them. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're a new listener, be sure to get in on that 10-episode challenge so they can get caught up with everything that we're talking about, everything that I reference. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.